Hello, and this is welcome. Uh, this is Rachel O'Mara, and welcome to the newest edition of the podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Amishi Ja. Hi, Amishi. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. And just a little bit about Amishi, and I'll let you extrapolate on this. Uh, I actually met you uh, earlier, I guess 2017, you came to Google for a talk, which was a wonderful talk about the impact of mindfulness on your brain and your business, and it was really great to host you. Uh, a little bit about Amishi. So Amishi is a neuroscientist and associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Miami. She's also director of contemplative neuroscience for the You Mindfulness Initiative, prior to which she was an assistant professor at the Center of Cognitive Neuroscience, University of Pennsylvania. So Dr. Amishi, <laughs> you've done so much for the world of um, neuroscience and your research, and I would love to hear a little bit on your take. Like, what does that all mean? Like, what do you spend your time doing, and where are you really focused? Because it's so important, I think, to get this research into, into the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm delighted to do this and finally have a chance to <laughs> be on your wonderful podcast, um, and I love the name. Um, so, I, yes, I'm a neuroscientist, and the work that I do in my lab is really interested in understanding basically how it is that we might be able to train the brain, and in particular the brain's attention system, so we can make it optimized for wellness and performance success. And what we've learned is that this system, attention, is obviously very powerful, right? Everything that we mm -hmm. need to do that's sort of a complex process we need our attention for. Um, and what we've learned through the brain science is that attention actually, the way it works is it biases information processing in the rest of the brain. So, for example, if you, even mm -hmm. if you close your eyes and you think about the, somebody's face, you would see the yep. face processing areas, memories associated with that person's face, um, language areas that are tied to words associated with that person, all would be activated. So just that idea that attention can bias information processing, I think, just shows us how powerful it is. But through the last yeah. probably decade or so, we've been focusing on figuring out, well, sure, attention is powerful, but most of us walk around feeling kind of distracted and not fully in control of our attention. You know, I, we wanted to know what makes us vulnerable, what makes the system vulnerable. And we found basically three main things that tend to consistently degrade or deplete attention. And those are stress, poor mood, and threat. And of course, I'm familiar all with three all of those. those. Yes, I was going to yes. say, all three of those are sort of I think I know all those very well. Yeah, <laughs> gosh. And it doesn't even have to be that there's an external a source of those. Just, be, just thinking a thought can elicit all three of those experiences. And, and, of course, certain professions have those even more so than others for circumscribed periods of time. So my work, we've been looking at high-stress, high-performance groups. So these are you – know, the reason I came to Google is because yeah. we want people that are at the highest end of performing professionally in organizations like Google, um, they're going to be under pressure to, to, to perform. And other groups like pre-deployment soldiers, students, athletes, yeah. you know, these are all examples of um, populations for whom stress is part and parcel of life. So what we've been doing is looking yeah. to see if there's solutions for stress. And yeah, so what are you the, learning? Um, that's just so fascinating to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and the part of the main solution that we're seeing is mindfulness training. 
So I'd love to, you know, that's why I really think it overlaps so well with your, um, with your book and with your, with the topics that you cover on this, on this program. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a very interesting point because, um, and I, and I learned this from your talk. It's only, the, the studies have only been around a few decades at the most, whereas, you know, we've been physically training our bodies for a couple hundred years, right? Like I remember that part of your talk, which is really cool. I'll put a link of your Google talk too on the page for this podcast because I think it's so relevant and, and great. But um, because it's so new, and I think I think of you as one of the, the frontiers, frontiers um, like hunting, like spearheading the new world of neuroscience, and, and the fact that now we have the technology to really get it, get more of the studies and research. Um, how how is that changing things? Like you know, like you, you turn around and everywhere, including in my book, you hear about mindfulness, and there's these uh, programs now, like on CNN, and you were there, and um, conferences like Wisdom 2.0, and, um, you know, what, is, what do you think, what's your take on how all of this is shaping up? Like, are we going to hit, uh, have we hit a tipping point? Is there more that we're going to be researching and learning before really everyone knows about this? I know it's like in certain pockets of different people and, and, and just depending on those factors, but it's so relevant to everything. Everyone deals with stress yeah. no matter what. So I'm just curious, what are your, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that is certainly where my passion kind of comes in. You know, I, I, I'm so grateful that we can look up in, whether it's NIH or the CDC or the Surgeon General of the United States, and we can get information about what to do to keep our bodies healthy. So even if you're like, I think I want to start exercising, you know, but what, do, what the heck should I do? What's the minimum I should do to make sure, you know, whether it's like couch to 5K or 30 minutes a day or 10,000 mm -hmm. steps, we now have guidance on what to do. But if you think about the mind, we're, it's totally open-ended. And over the last couple of decades, there's been a growing interest, not only in stress relief and psychological well-being, but also in cognitive training. So this notion that we could download a game on our phone and that could give us uh, the opportunity to exercise our brain in a way that would keep us cognitively fit. That's just such a great um, understanding we have. And I do think it comes out of this notion that the body, the mind, they're both trainable and that we need to exercise them to optimize ourselves. So what yeah. I'm interested in is, okay, if it is the case that we can train our, our – we know we can train our body. If it is the case that we can train our mind, what should we do? And, you know, these brain training games, I mean, it's a, it's a massive industry, over a billion-dollar industry. Yeah. Let's download, talk about those. You know, some, I'm so curious. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like – I mean, I'll just name a name because we hear it all, every time you turn on the radio, you probably hear an ad for this, like something like Lumosity or, or Positive yep. Science. I mean, these are all yeah. games – um, that are, you know, subscription-based. And, and, you know, because of the growing interest and the growing market for them, a lot of researchers have become very curious about their effectiveness because, of course, the companies do the research on them. But how about people that are not related to the industry at all just to see their effectiveness? And, unfortunately, the growing body of research suggests that – well, let me just parse it a little bit. So, absolutely, mm -hmm. these, these games train the brain. 100%. They are brain training games. The question is, what are they training? Yeah. You know, most of us are not going to play a video game if it's there to be played for cognitive fitness just so we can get better at the game, right? So we play it because we think whatever brain training happens will generalize to the rest of our lives. So when I yeah. say that these games absolutely train the brain, what we're finding is that they're very task-specific. 
So, for example, you know, think of it as sort of like if you memorized a poem, let's say, remember back to your high school days where you might have had to do something like this. Oh, yeah. If you, if you practice memorizing that poem every day, you're going to be, you're going to know that poem well. But yep. if you all of a sudden get a new poem, it's not going to make you better. I mean, we have this intuition already. It's not going to make you better instantly knowing how to memorize a new poem. You'd have to mm-hmm. also practice that new poem. So there is this sense of specificity. We train on a specific set of stimuli. Our brain gets more efficient at representing those. But we really hope that brain training wouldn't just work like that, that only the very specific narrow thing would uh, be better. We'd expect generalizability. So what these games seem to be doing is training specifics, but not generalizing. And that leaves me with a sense of kind of hopelessness. It's like, oh, man, so there's this huge industry. People really want to do this. There's a growing cultural need and understanding for this. But there's no solution right now. So, as a, yeah. again, as a cognitive neuroscientist, I wanted to see if maybe something like mindfulness training, which has been around for millennia, may be able to train the brain that's in a way that's generalizable. And so what are you learning in that? Is that, uh, like, have we dived deep into that to kind of understand it better? Yeah, um, yeah. That, versus that, those specificity, specificity games? Right. So the first thing, just on face value, right? So, like, if you're playing a brain training game, the way they're going to test if you're better at it is to actually give you a, that same game to see if your performance is better or something very similar. And mm-hmm. as, that, as the test game is more and more distant from the game that you're trained on, the fewer the benefits, which means that it's not generalizing, right? Yeah. But even at face value, if you think of what we do when we do a mindfulness practice, and a very simple one that I do every day for about you know, 10, 15 minutes a day is something called mindfulness of breathing, right? where you just focus uh, on the sensations of the breath, and then when the mind wanders, you return it back to the breath. So sitting the quietly, pause. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. It's it's the same as as the way you've described, and that's why I love it. It's very accessible. It doesn't take a lot of time. There's no magic instructions, and there's no esoteric state. It's simply focusing on the breath to return to what's happening to yeah. you in the moment. And think about the context in which you do that. Sitting quietly by yourself in your office, or you know, in the morning when you wake up. Now, how do we test if there's some benefit of doing that? Obviously, I would say most of us are not doing that because we really want to get great at focusing on our breath. That's not the reason. It's so that in all those other moments when we need to show up, we're better able to be present with what's happening in the moment. So now we take the people that have been training with those kinds of exercises, those mindfulness exercises, and we bring them into the lab and have them do very detailed cognitive tests, very similar to what, for example, we might we might do to test attention in, in something like a brain training game. And we find that when people go through programs, and in my lab, those have been ranging from about 24 hours over eight weeks down to about eight hours over eight weeks. Um, we see benefits in, those, in the performance on those brain experiments, on those brain training games, just from having done mindfulness training which is a really nice demonstration that there's generalizability, right? From doing something privately by yourself to now an objective laboratory measure finds improvements in your performance. Yeah, so the takeaway I'm hearing is uh, that it works, so that if you are simply following your breath for, you know, it could be 15 minutes a day or even a couple minutes, but ideally consistent and and just really being focused on that, then then there uh, there are ways that your brain is, Shifting to be more mindful and um, and less more attentive, and like those factors, right. more right. attentive, and those factors no longer hit as much as uh, not as not as much impact as they may have been if there was no training. 
the stress and the absolutely yeah yeah. yeah and I think wow. that the puzzle now is like how much right so the recommendation right. we get for like the number of steps a day is like 10,000 steps a day and you should yeah. do at least 30 minutes of, of vigorous cardiovascular exercise um, that's yeah. the question is how much is enough to really start causing some substantial benefits it may not be one breath alone that's going to do it, but right. maybe something like 15 minutes a day, formally being introduced to it in a, in a, in a kind of guided way, um, and then committing to it for some period of time, let's say four to eight weeks, now you can start seeing yeah. that the workout is paying off, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and, and so that's, that is really interesting to know, and I, I imagine labs like yours, the research you're doing, and along with others in, in, around the world, and, and like we will find that answer. It's just a matter of additional work, time, research, and that kind of thing. Exactly. Right now we you know, we're practicing. <laughs> exactly. We can practice ourselves. Those of us are finding that, that there's um, benefit, you know, in, in incorporating this. But I'm hoping that through the next coming decades, we'll be able to be more prescriptive and grow this, this kind of cultural yeah. knowledge base that this is something we can do every day. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to the analogy with the physical exercise and that I mean, it was such an impactful um, story you shared. You know, it's, it's just like in the turn of the century when people thought exercise was detrimental and, and even like the story, like women aren't equipped to even run or, you know, like little things right. like that. And we're at that stage where, well, we, we, this is good. We know it's good. We just don't know how much. And not that everyone's going to go out and run a marathon. It's about what we discover. So I, I just think that must be a fascinating way to spend your days doing that type of research and um and, and it's only a matter of time. The other thing I'm, I'm thinking about is, is you mentioned it already, your work with the military. And I just want to commend you for that research because it's so important. We're probably learning so much. And I know it's one of your, one of your areas of, of focus and you're really passionate about it. Um, is there anything you want to share just to help others know a little bit more about what you're doing there or anything you're learning or just big things about? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd be like, happy what to. if you were in the military and you're listening to this and you could be like, what is she talking about? <laughs> what can we, what can right. We so this? the military, right? So here's going back to what I said at the outset, the idea that our attention is power, powerful, but also there's like certain things that act like kryptonite for it, stress, mood, poor yeah. mood and threat. Well, we know that the deployment period itself, when you're engaging in combat, or even if you're doing a humanitarian mission and helping people with an Ebola outbreak, right? There are aspects right. to what we ask our military service members to do that are that are that are threatening and, and high risk situations. Um, yeah. So, what we I wanted to know first pass is okay. My hunch is, and as we know, unfortunately, there's a huge uptick in psychological health disorders in our service members. And those are the folks that we want to integrate uh, successfully back into society once they're no longer actively part of the military. So there's a, a large vulnerability in, in, in what service members are asked to do and then the consequences of that for their own health. But what I was curious about is, okay, so we know that there is this thing called a deployment cycle. There's a period of time where they're getting ready to go, then they're going to go, and then they're going to come back. And there's going to be post-deployment kind of reset phase as well. What happens even as they're preparing to go? Because if I had to think about a solution, it would be, I don't want to just give people a thera therapeutic solution to having experienced PTSD. I want to see if there's some way that I could arm them, so to speak, with all the psychological and cognitive tools so that they are the most likely to do, do their job successfully and the least likely to suffer long-term psychological consequences. So I was always interested in 
preparing beforehand. And, you know, so the first test was, okay, let's just track people's well-being and attention over pre-deployment. Let's take a two-month period of time as people are preparing to go on a deployment combat mission and see what happens. And, you know, the the Army's uh, uh, thinking here was that that's when we're best readying our soldiers for what's coming ahead. We're preparing them with all their operational knowledge, their technical knowledge, their language skills. Exactly. Getting ready so they're best ready to, to handle the challenges. I had a very different kind of expectation from a cognitive training point of view, which is that essentially, just like the academic semester, you know, there's demands, and then those demands kind of are extended over multiple months, and there may be a depletion. Even as you're preparing to go, there may be a depletion because of day-to-day demand to stay engaged. Um, And that's unfortunately what we found. When we track people's attention and mood over pre-deployment, over an eight-week period of pre-deployment, they were more negative in their mood, less positive, and had worse attention and working memory at the end of that eight-week period. Still pre-deployment relative to the beginning. And to me, that really was unfortunate. And and sadly, I mean, I I saw it coming because basically they're going to have a lot of demand. So it was in that same period of time that we wanted to offer them mindfulness training to see if, okay, if we do nothing, we see this decline. What if we do something? What if we actually give them this mental workout? And so then the puzzle became, how can we offer the workout in a way that's accessible to them? So it doesn't, it's not like going on, you know, your own private retreat for a month where you're just disengaging from life and practicing. They're still in the active pre-deployment phase. So we did a couple, their hands are full and their time is limited. And frankly, getting permission from the leadership to even interact with them was very tricky because their mission number one is get ready for the mission ahead, right? So I was able to get uh, a few DOD grants and a lot of this initial work was done with my collaborator, uh, Dr. Liz Stanley at Georgetown. And she, as a former military service member herself and a mindfulness practitioner, you know, she also had the sense, the sense that not only do we want to try to offer it, but here's how we might be able to do it. So she and I partnered together on this first series of, of grants that we've had. Uh, and what we did is we said, let's, let's come up with a program based off of what we know works in the civilian context, which is something called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction by John Kabat-Zinn. But let's reduce the time demand so it's a little more manageable. So one condition had about 24 hours, about three hours a week with the, with the instructor for eight weeks. Then another program had 16 hours, and yet another program had eight hours. So we were titrating down all the way down to one hour, about on average one hour a week for eight weeks. And we compared to see how their attentional changes looked across those three kind of dosings, if you will. Well, what we found, first of all, is that getting the training was definitely protective. So if you do nothing at all, you decline in your well-being and attention. But if you get training, you can stay stable. And that even going down to as low as eight hours a week could still produce benefits. So that was so, pretty wow. exciting. But but the yeah. key to all of this, no matter how often you met with the trainer for how long, the absolute key was how long you individually practiced. And we found this sort of kind of magic number, I guess. And you know, we asked people to practice 30 minutes a day. But if they did as little as 12 minutes a day for the two-month period, they actually were able to stay stable over time and didn't wow. suffer this cognitive and emotional decline. So 12 so minutes that's, is the magic number? <laughs> that was the magic number, yeah, wow. as little as 12 minutes. And in our subsequent grants, what we've done is made more like an open source model with my colleague, Scott Rogers, where we're now training Army sports psychologists to help scale up the availability of mindfulness training in a program we call 
mindfulness-based attention training, or MBAT. It's got a very combat-related... Yes. MBAT. I remember MBAT, yes. Good. Yeah. So that gives you a sense of how we're trying to approach this group and why we think yeah. it's so important. Yeah, I think it's incredible, incredible work. So, again, thank you for, for all of that. I, I know um, I have three brothers in the military, three out of four that were at one oh, point wow. in service. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I'm just fascinated about it, and I, I, I like, can't say enough about it, that it's, it's just to get awareness and, and your work out in the world, even if, um, you know, people are learning from a group that's very specific. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's yeah, applications yeah. towards it in other groups. Uh, well, but I was just curious. Say, I just, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just I want to say one yeah. last thing, which is, you know, it's it's obviously as a scientist to me, it's very exciting to say, oh, we got statistically significant results. But the most heartening um, aspects of all of this is when I hear from service members themselves. Mm. You know, we had this army medic who actually described to us how different he felt after going on deployment. He had been on four deployments just in recent, you know, since the whole uh, two thousand. Yeah. Um, one um, began the, this 2007 kind of a, a 2001 uptick began, and he was just saying that prior to the the mission he had been in, just before he got the mindfulness training, you know, this time he actually was aware of what's happening. He didn't feel sort of this kind of bloodthirsty, reactive, having blinders on orientation. Mm-hmm. And you know, he said some of the most poignant things, like if I saw a boy coming toward me, and after, my first thought was like. This is a this is a human being. This is this is somebody's son. This is somebody who could be you know he could be my son. Like that sense of connection and awareness of what was happening around him, with a little bit more heart. That you know, wow. well, how can we actually go about doing what we're supposed to do and still do it in a way that is going to be the least likely to cause ongoing harm to myself, you know, as a service member, as well as to the people that mm-hmm. that are here living here. And I think that's right. very that's very powerful. That's very powerful. Thanks for sharing that. That's just like such a good reminder too. I mean, it, I'm thinking of applying it to myself, and it's like going yeah. down the street if I'm just feeling triggered from my morning and knowing and remembering, <clears throat> like okay, like all these people are just like me. Exactly. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I love the little um, like anecdotes too. Yeah. Uh, so, so switching gears, I know um, we can wrap up here in a little bit, but I know, um, I know you live in, I think most of like Southern Florida there in Miami and, and spend some time in, in Philadelphia. Um, so what do you do per- personally to pause and to really intentionally shift your behavior? I'm sure, you know, it's not like you're, you're living it, you're breathing it, you're, you're working it. <laughs> so I'm curious if you're yeah. sharing what, what, what you personally enjoy and, and what works for you. Right, right. And I I love that. I mean, you know, it's funny because in the kind of metaphor I give of what mindfulness is, I actually use the metaphor of an MP3 player. And what I say is that the mind is this like, extremely well-tuned mental time travel organ to, to fast forward to the future, to plan or to rewind to the past. And that sometimes those moments of not being here, being times, you know, out of sync with what's happening in the moment um, can be problematic. And that mindfulness, uh, unlike a ruminating or catastrophizing mind shifted in time, is about being in the moment, right? And I talk about it as being, having the button on play. But what's at the sa- what's at the same place as the play button? It's the pause button. That's why I loved the title of your book, because I think it's perfectly aligned 
with what we're talking about. In some yeah. sense, before we even press play, we have to pause on that incessant mind wandering. Yeah. And so, I mean, I have kind of practical ways that I do it in my, in my day-to-day life. I mean, I have a formal practice. I try to do a mindfulness of breathing exercise. Once my, I have, you know, two kids and, and a, a husband, and they're usually out of the house in the morning so that I have a little quiet time. And I um, wait till they're out of the house ready for school and work before I'll do a a quiet practice by myself, about 15 minutes or so, just kind of informed by our research of, you know, if I can't do a full hour like I would have loved, like I might love to, I at least will get my 15 minutes in. And that helps a lot, kind of before I get into the, the nitty gritty of the day. But even throughout the day, I mean, I think that for example, you know, there's there's the formal the formal period of brain training, but also just disengaging from normal kind of sitting at your desk activities. Like, I just uh, we just got a new dog in my family, so I love now right. just even between tasks to walk over and pick him up and just sit have him in my lap and pet him. You know, I mean, just something as simple as just shifting gears away from the task at hand and a pet to return pause. to something. <laughs> pet pause. I love my pet pause, and that's pretty new in my life. I never had a pet before the last couple of you know about a month yeah. so I mean it can it can be as simple as as that or even uh literally uh getting up and taking a uh, taking a walk around campus just something that shifts away from one mode to get freshened up to get into the next mode those are great I I love the shifting gears and and that's a that's totally aligned like you said with my message so um I think that's a really powerful tool and it's so it's so obvious that I think it's easily missed. Just like I am a big advocate of getting up from your desk if you're at lunch or you walk and walking around the block or doing the belly breath pause, you know, like putting one hand on your diaphragm and whatever amounts you can spare is is, is great. So thanks for yeah. thanks for sharing your, your tips. Uh and and in general, if people are interested to learn more about your studies or just what you're up to, I know uh you're doing a lot these days. So so where can people go to find more information? Yeah, so if, learn uh, more about your your research. Absolutely. Well I'd love for people to visit our, our lab website if they want to learn about the kind of nitty gritty under the hood research studies that we're doing. And that's um at attention.miami.edu. So it's at the University of Miami and attention is kind of the keyword. So attention.miami.edu. And I'm also, I've started, you know, because there's such a growing interest, I've started a university-wide initiative here on the University of Miami campus called You Mindfulness. And, you know, the U is sort of our, 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 uh, the way we describe our university. But I love it because it has sort of multiple meanings, right? When we talk about the U and You Mindfulness, it it could also mean you as the individual. So if you'd like to learn about that, go to mindfulness.miami.edu. And we have lots of resources there and all of our events and talks and speakers. So I'd love for people to learn about what we've been up to and hopefully benefit from some of the offerings we have there. Great. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And I'll, I'll put that out on the page as well so people can click on that to learn more. And, uh, yeah, Dr. Dr. Joe, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I, I think we can kind of wrap it up here. And I just want to say it's, it's been an honor and, and blessing to, to learn more from you and, and um, you're a big inspiration for me as you do your research and bring a lot of this that's been just not available to the public um, in a broader sense. So that I'm just really grateful to, to be, a, be someone who's, uh, you know, looking at you as, as, as um, a trailblazer, if you will. So is there anything else that you'd want to share with us? Uh, anything I, I you're working think that, on? No, or? I think we've... We've covered a lot. I just want to uh, say again, I'm so uh, 
so happy to see the the momentum you've had in bringing this notion of pause into our culture. And in some sense, you know, people are listening to your podcast, just take a pause pledge, you know, just decide Mm -hmm. yourselves that if you're going to spend the time listening to a podcast about it, know that the best way to actually benefit is to do it. So commit Um, to some period of time every day that you do it. Yeah. That's, that's great. And actually, yeah, that's so funny in the book. There is a purpose pledge uh, for pausing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. Read in our minds. Yeah. So so (laughs) thanks again. And, uh, uh, Dr. Mishi, thank you so much for being with us and appreciate all your time and, and keep doing the, the good fight, good work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much.